How close are we to nuclear war with Russia? Is special counsel John Durham ever going to hold corrupt FBI leaders accountable for all the laws they broke in the Trump-Russia collusion hoax? Plus, Biden regime and California Governor Newsom team up to make it harder for you to protect your children and grandchildren from being castrated. And on the fifth anniversary of the worst mass shooting in United States history, what have we learned about the Vegas October 1st shooting? Find out on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. This is episode 250 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. On August 8, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, to start off with, I have been holding out hope for several years that special counsel John Durham would eventually hold high-ranking people accountable for the crimes they committed trying to frame Donald Trump as some kind of traitor colluding with Vladimir Putin and Russia against our country. A lot of my hope that Durham would do the right thing and perhaps some sort of sweeping RICO action in federal court would be launched against at least James Comey, Peter Strzok, and Andrew McCabe, if not Hillary herself, was based on Durham's reputation of integrity and winning convictions on official corruption cases over the years. But in the last few days... I've read two long articles which have disabused me of this notion. The first one is called Special Counsel Durham's Protect the Establishment Approach is Destroying the Country. It was written by the wonderful Margot Cleveland, senior legal correspondent over The Federalist. The second is called Durham Prosecutes FBI Informants While Protecting Their Handlers by the great Paul Sperry, an investigative journalist who goes all the way back to the days of WorldNet Daily in the late 90s. He once reported about standing toe-to-toe with an angry Bill Clinton at an outdoor garden party when Bubba was still president. Anyway, both Margot Cleveland and Paul Sperry's articles about where things stand in special counsel Durham's probe 
are quite good. I recommend them to you. And if you've been listening to the Doc Washburn Show for very long, you know I have no problem with the idea of sharing long articles with you on the show. But in both of these articles, there are just too many names mentioned in each article to keep from confusing you in this audio medium by trying to share them with you by reading them to you. For instance, if you were to read either of these articles yourself, and you got two-thirds of the way through, and someone's last name was mentioned that you didn't recognize, it would be easy for you to scroll up and find where it was first mentioned to refresh your memory and keep from becoming confused, but that is impossible if you are just hearing me read one or both of the articles to you. So allow me to summarize them to you. John Durham has been at this for several years, and he has only indicted three people. The first was FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith, whom he went really easy on, community service. The second was DNC lawyer Michael Sussman, whom a partisan Democrat jury found not guilty in short order, probably because they're all on the same team. The third is Igor Danchenko. Now, that trial's coming up later this month. He's a Russian national who had lived in the U.S. for many years. He was a source for most of the garbage in the Steele dossier that the FBI used to go after Trump for several years. It was also the foundation for the corrupt Robert Mueller investigation, which went on for close to two years and spent many millions of dollars and hampered the Trump administration for almost half of his first term. Now, Durham operated as if Michael Sussman was taking the FBI for a ride. He's doing the same thing with the Danchenko prosecution. He's acting as if he believes the FBI is the innocent party taken advantage of by people like Sussman and especially Danchenko. Yeah, if only old Igor had come clean with the FBI, things would have come out differently. Well, Durham seems to be studiously avoiding all the evidence which shows Danchenko was not hiding anything from FBI leadership, and they were looking for any excuse to try to nail Trump with or without evidence. It's very disappointing, to say the least. I hope I'm proven wrong. I I hope Paul Sperry is proven wrong. I hope Margot Cleveland is proven wrong. But it doesn't look like that's where things are going. So I needed to share that with you because we try to bend over backwards here on the Doc Washburn show. Um not to uh, minimize what's going on, you know? Not to sugarcoat things. Speaking of not sugarcoating things, let me talk about what's going on with Russia and with Putin. Now, the easiest thing in the world for us as Americans to do is to say, hey, he's a horrible person. He's a murderer. He goes after his enemies, has them assassinated. When he says something belligerent, easiest thing in the world for us to do is to say, well, he's wrong. Okay. 
no doubt. But where does that get us? I mean, Osama bin Laden was wrong. Zawahiri was wrong. Zarqawi was wrong. And they killed Americans anyway. Um, Hitler was wrong. Couldn't be any more wrong than Osama bin Laden or Hitler or Emperor Hirohito. But they killed a lot of Americans. So, yeah, he's wrong. But do we want to go to war with him? He's got nukes. We got nukes. Is that what we want to happen? Because Biden and whoever is pulling his strings, they're acting like you better believe that's what we want. Okay, we need to to have a serious conversation about this. We need to talk about this. And there are a couple of people that have done a lot of study on this and a lot of thought on this. And I want to share with you some of the things they're saying. Um, Michael Tracy over on Twitter is a guy who calls himself a roving journalist. And he said a couple of days ago, if tomorrow Putin launches a preemptive strike on Washington, D.C. or something, it will be forevermore denounced as revisionism, you know, revisionist history, to mention literally anything the U.S. did prior to that date. Okay? So... The next day, he said, people have been screaming that the word preemptive was somehow the wrong word to use here because there would be no threat from the U.S. for Russia to preempt. He says, "Uh, okay, but, you know, Bush launched what he called preemptive war against Iraq on the ground that there was a threat from Iraq that the U.S. needed to preempt. Bush's doctrine of so-called preemption was universally understood to have been the theoretical basis on which the Iraq war was launched. Even people who were harsh critics of what Bush did, who rejected Bush's justification for the invasion, nonetheless still universally referred to the invasion as preemptive. Referring to a military strike as preemptive is not to morally endorse the validity of the logic behind the strike, just as critics of George W. Bush were not morally endorsing the invasion of Iraq when they universally referred to the invasion as preemptive. Sorry if it seems like I'm teaching an elementary logic class or something, but this is kind of important stuff. And he goes into arguments that he is having with several different people out there on Twitter. And then he says, I guess I'm hammering this point because for one thing, it underscores just how horrendously confused morally, logically, descriptively, strategically, the current public debate is around these issues. And given current risk levels, that's not a particularly great sign. 
if the U.S. could invoke the doctrine of preemption to launch a preempt, a so-called preemptive strike on Iraq on the ground, that extremely unsubstantiated weapons of mass destruction and terrorist threats allegedly emanating out of Iraq needed to be urgently preempted. Is it really a stretch to imagine that Russia could invoke the doctrine of preemption to launch a so-called preemptive strike on the U.S. on the ground that substantiated things like arms manufacture and provision to Ukraine, which are emanating out of the U.S., need to be urgently preempted? Okay, so that's Michael Tracy with his argument. All right? Now, next I want to go to Caitlin Johnstone over on Substack, her newsletter. And this is from just a few hours ago as we speak. Her short article is called The Narrative That This War Was Unprovoked Prevents Peace. She says, Vladimir Putin has approved the annexation of four territories in eastern Ukraine whose addition to the Russian Federation now await authorization from Russia's other branches of government. The Zelensky government responded to the move by applying to join NATO, only to be immediately shut down by the U.S. and NATO officials. Can't have sacrificial pawns trying to rise above their station on the grand chessboard, after all. But the empire's proxy war against Russia continues, and the Ukrainian government has announced its intentions to drive out Russia from all the Ukrainian territories it has claimed as its own. Zelensky Advisor Mikhailo Podolyak told Politico, For our plans, Russia's annexation doesn't matter. He added that Ukraine will protect our land using all our forces and should liberate all its territories. Okay? The plan to reclaim territories annexed by Russia will, according to Zelensky, also include the area of Crimea, which was annexed in 2014. Now, all this talk about preparing a massive Western-backed counteroffensive to recapture annexed territories from Russia, whose ranks are being reinforced with an additional 300,000 reservists, comes as Putin suggests that nuclear weapons may be used to protect what Moscow considers parts of Russia. Russia, like the United States, unfortunately is one of the nuclear-armed nations that does not subscribe to a no-first-use policy. Did you know that? Did you know that Russia does not have a no-first-use policy? Did you know that the U.S. does not have a no-first-use policy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's something the U.S. and Russia have in common. We don't have a lot in common. But here's something we do have in common. Neither one of us says, well, we'll never use a nuke first. We would only use it in retaliation. No, 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 no. We don't say that, and Russia doesn't say that. Did you know that? That's something important to know. So, anyway, Caitlin Johnstone says, 
So we appear to be on a collision course toward a massive escalation between two nuclear-armed powers. And the more things escalate, the more likely it is that a nuclear weapon may be used either deliberately or as a result of miscommunication or malfunction, as nearly happened many times during the last Cold War. Well, that's a problem, because once one nuke is used, the odds go up astronomically that a great many more nukes will immediately follow with variables on this outcome, including the location where it detonates and how cool all the relevant heads of state happen to be at that particular moment in history. I never thought I would be talking about this. I never thought I would be talking about this. Because with the Berlin Wall going down and the Soviet Union breaking up, I thought the Cold War was over. But here we are, 30 years later, talking about the possibility of a nuclear war with Russia. This is crazy. Okay, back to Caitlin Johnstone's substack. I I reserve the right to digress every once in a while. She says, the fact that if one is used, a bunch more will probably be used. That leads to this. It's therefore no exaggeration to say that the human species has a vested interest in de-escalation and detente right away. Now, in case you're saying, okay, Doc, wait a minute, detente. I think I heard that word many years ago. Who who used that? Uh, Nixon? Kissinger? Where where, did that come from? Or in case you're a younger person, you're like, Dude, don't have any idea. You're going to have to break it down for me. Détente is French, a French word for relaxation. It's the relaxation of strained relations, especially political strained relations, by verbal communication. The term détente in diplomacy originates from way before Nixon or Kissinger, from around 1912, when France and Germany tried unsuccessfully to reduce tensions. The term is often used to refer to a period of general easing of the geopolitical tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. It began in 1969 as a core element of the foreign policy of President Nixon in an effort to avoid nuclear escalation. The Nixon administration promoted greater dialogue with the Soviet government, including regular summit meetings and negotiations over arms control and other bilateral agreements. Detente was known in Russia as Razradka, which I'm probably mispronouncing, loosely meaning relaxation of tension. So, yeah, that's what we need, but no... Biden and his handlers seem intent on ratcheting up tensions. They don't want de-escalation. They don't want detente. Anyway, Caitlin Johnstone says, Avoiding nuclear war is the single most important agenda in the entire world without exception. It is the single most important agenda that has ever existed in all history. But whenever you advocate for this supremely important agenda, 
in any kind of public forum. You get a bunch of brainwashed empire automatons bleeding about so-called appeasement and accusing you of supporting a monstrous madman. And they do this because that's what they were trained to do. And she posts an example. An example from a tweet. And this person says, the world is now closer to nuclear war than it has ever been. Even the Cuban Missile Crisis and the entire Western media and political class is just doubling down and getting closer and closer to nuclear apocalypse. It's seriously the most deranged blank I've ever seen in my life. And anyone who dares to question it, no matter how lightly, is hysterically denounced as an evil monster. It's a form of mass hysteria that's unprecedented. It's astonishing how many people they are willing to get mass murdered just so they can proudly pose as brave heroes. And then continues by saying LMAO, so if you have a large nuclear stockpile, you can just do anything, LMAO you blank insane lunatic, the Soviet Union Union enforced its sphere of influence over and over, and the U.S. didn't directly interfere because they knew it would end the world. Are you deranged? Did you want the U.S. to start a nuclear holocaust over Hungary and Czechoslovakia? Or the Soviet Union over Cuba, Korea, Vietnam, Nicaragua, etc.? There used to be some sane people among Western elites who at least understood this basic point, but they're all insane now. Did you want China to start a nuclear apocalypse over the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan? Of course not. That's clearly insane. You're just LARPing now because that's what every media class hack freak is telling you, and you regurgitate that like a vapid, mindless drone and she links to something from six months ago says i recommend watching all the clips in the thread carefully and see how it compares to what has happened in the intervening period he has been vindicated on everything and it's all been leading to the final step of nuclear use oh my goodness So, we go back to, who is John Mearsheimer? See, this was embedded in Caitlin Johnstone's substack. Let me me just check this real quick. John Mearsheimer, I think I've heard that name before. Let's see, who who is this guy? An American political scientist and international relations scholar who belongs to the realist school of thought. He is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. He's been described as the most influential realist of his generation. Interesting. So there are some... uh, international experts who don't believe in reality. 
He's best known for developing the theory of offensive realism, which describes the interaction between great powers as being primarily driven by the rational desire to achieve regional hegemony in an anarchic international system. In accordance with his theory, Mearsheimer believes that China's growing power will likely bring it into conflict with the United States. Wow. All right. So back in March, let's see what this uh, Mearsheimer guy was saying and, and see if it makes sense to us. So what we did after 2014 is double down, and what we're going to do now and what we're doing now is doubling down. And what does that mean? We're encouraging the Ukrainians to resist. We're not going to fight for them, you understand. We're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, but we're not going to do any of the fighting. They're on their own in that regard. But we're going to arm them and do what we can to train them at this late date and hope that they can hang in there uh, and uh, and duke it out with the Russians. And nobody believes they're going to defeat the Russians, but maybe you'll get a stalemate. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, this is really the key question, is what are the Russians going to do, right? Uh, it seems to me that a lot of people in the West think that uh, if the Ukrainians provide enough resistance, the Russians will roll over and play dead. Uh, or maybe Vladimir Putin will throw his hands up, he'll surrender, he'll say, this was all a bad idea, uh, I regret doing it. Uh, or maybe there'll be a coup in Moscow, he'll be overthrown, and they'll bring in leaders who will work out a deal with us, and Ukraine will live happily ever after, we will live happily ever after, and the Russians will be chastened. I've spent my entire adult life studying great power politics, learning a lot about great power politics. This is not the way the world works, and it is certainly not the way the Russians work. You want to understand, going back to what I said about the April 2008 decision, the Russians said at the time, this is an existential threat. This is an existential threat, right? So even before the current war, Ukraine and Ukraine becoming part of NATO was viewed as an existential threat. Now you're talking about a situation where you defeat the Russians in Ukraine. This is a much worse outcome for the Russians than what happened in April 2008, and a much worse outcome than what happened in February 2014. And the Russians are not going to roll over and play dead. In fact, okay, I got more from this guy, and he's making an awful lot of sense, and I think that we ignore his analysis to our great peril. So don't go anywhere. Stick around. This is important. Um, almost everybody listening to the sound of my voice has loved ones uh, that they want to see live long and, and happy and fruitful and blessed lives. Uh that is all threatened by the possibility, by the prospect of nuclear holocaust. That's something we would like to avoid. So, yeah, more coming up straight ahead. Once again, our undying thanks 
to our advertisers, our friends, who make it possible for us to do what we do here week in and week out as we approach the first anniversary of the Doc Washburn Show. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement, call my friend Jonathan Presswood today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. 4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you once, thank you once again to our advertisers, our friends, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones Financial Advisors and Mitch Ward, who is the proprietor for Red River Your Way. We couldn't do what we do week in and week out as we approach our first anniversary without our good friends who are our advertisers. And we certainly hope that you will 
uh, patronize their businesses. Okay, so we're looking at this situation here, trying to avoid nuclear war with Russia, and the Biden regime has really got this messed up. And so we're listening to John Mearsheimer, American political scientist and international relations scholar, explain how we're looking at it all wrong. Here's more. The Russians are not going to roll over and play dead. In fact, what the Russians are going to do is they're going to crush the Ukrainians. They're going to bring out the big guns. They're going to turn places like Kiev and other cities in Ukraine into rubble. They're going to do Fallujahs. They're going to do Mosul's. They're going to do Grozny's. You know what happened in World War II when the United States was faced with the possibility of having to invade the Japanese home islands in early 1945. The idea of invading the Japanese home islands after what happened at Iwo Jima and then later what happened in Okinawa really spooked us. So you know what we did? We decided to burn Japanese cities to the ground starting on March 10th, 1945. We killed more people the first night we firebombed Tokyo than we killed at either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And we were systematically burning Japanese cities to the ground. Why? Because we did not want to invade the Japanese main islands. When a great power feels threatened, when it, the Russians are going to pull out all stops in Ukraine. Okay, wait a minute. We had a little audio situation there, and I, I don't know if it was my computer or the video. So let's, let's, let's back it up and find out. Why? Because we did not want to invade the Japanese main islands. When a great power feels threatened, when it, the Russians are going to pull out all stops in Ukraine to make sure that they win. And then there's the nuclear dimension to this. The Russians have already put their nuclear weapons on high alert. This is a really significant development because what they would do was sending us a very powerful signal as to how seriously they take this crisis and what's going on. So again, if we start winning and the Russians start losing, you want to understand that what we're talking about doing here is backing a nuclear-armed great power that sees what's happening as an existential threat into a corner. This is really dangerous. Go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't think that what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis was as threatening to us as this situation is to the Russians. But if you go back and look at how American decision makers thought at the time, they were scared stiff. All right. Let's go to the uh, the next little video clip here from John Mearsheimer who unfortunately is making a lot of sense, American political scientist and international relations scholar, who unfortunately is making a lot of sense. I don't like it when people tell me things that uh, portend negative possibilities, severely negative possibilities, and they make sense, and I don't have any way to argue back. Here's more. 
They thought that Soviet missiles in Cuba was an existential threat, and they were willing, many of Kennedy's advisors, to use our nuclear arsenal against the Soviet Union. That's how serious great powers get when they think they face existential threats. So in my opinion, we are in a very dangerous situation. I think the likelihood of nuclear war is very small, but the likelihood doesn't have to be high for me to be really scared because of the consequences associated with nuclear use. So we better be extremely careful here. I wonder if he thinks the likelihood has gone up in the last six months. Regarding what we do in terms of pushing the Russians into the corner. But again, I'm not sure that's going to happen because I think what's going to happen here is that in a competition between us and the Russians, the Russians will win. Now, you're saying to yourself, why is he saying that? I think that if you uh, think about this, you want to think about who has the greater resolve, right? Who, who really cares more about this situation, the Russians or the Americans? The Americans do not care that much about Ukraine. The Americans have made it clear they are not even willing to fight and die for Ukraine. So it's not that important to us. For the Russians, they have made it clear it's an existential threat. So the balance of resolve, I believe, favors them. So as we walk up the escalation ladder moving forward, my guess, and it's just my guess, is that the Russians will prevail, not the Americans, and the Russians will prevail because the balance of resolve favors them. Now, the question is, who loses this war? Uh, I think it doesn't matter much to the United States if we lose in the sense that the Russians prevail in Ukraine. I think the real losers in this war are the Ukrainians. And I think what's happened here is we have led the Ukrainians down the primrose path. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, this is, um, this is very concerning. I got a couple more clips, but the person who is posting this stuff says earlier in the talk, Mearsheimer says that he does not believe Russia will take over the entire country and occupy it. And any such, such suggestion is absurd. Rather, the question is, how much of the eastern part they'll try to take. And that, of course, is the question. And links to a, you know, a video almost 26 minutes long, which obviously we can't go into that. But, um, yeah, this is... Uh, Very concerning. So let's go back. Let's go back to where we were. We were at Caitlin Johnstone's Substack article, and there was an embedded tweet from somebody else who goes by Z Squirrel, Z as in zebra, E I underscore squirrel on Twitter, who says, 
U.S. missile systems guided by CIA and Pentagon intelligence have been killing Russian troops en masse for months, and places inside Russia itself have been hit, as Russia's leader says they will retaliate with nuclear weapons. It's actually far worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis, but because this atmosphere has been created by the media class that it's all just a big joke, a meaningless bluff, nothing to worry about, we're all brave heroes, it seeps into everyone's mindset to think it's fine and no big deal, that's the actual terrifying part. Now, do I know for sure that this is true, that U.S. missile systems guided by CIA and Pentagon intelligence have been killing Russian troops en masse for months and places inside Russia itself have been hit? I don't know if that's true. But i tell you one thing. If it is true, I don't know if it is, but if it is true, I'm surprised that Putin hasn't hit us already. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, as Noam Chomsky has been pointing out repeatedly, good grief, I never thought I'd find myself taking him seriously, but but here we are. As Noam Chomsky has been pointing out repeatedly, the political media class have been continually indoctrinating the public with a completely false narrative that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked. Every time the war comes up, the imperial spinmeisters utter that slogan in much the same way Michael Jackson had a quota of how often MTV hosts were obligated to refer to him as the king of pop Michael Jackson when his name was mentioned. But what does it mean if the war is unprovoked? It means Putin didn't invade Ukraine because of anything the Western Empire was doing, so it couldn't have been prevented, couldn't have been, by the Western Empire behaving less aggressively on Russia's borders. Unprovoked would mean Putin necessarily invaded because he is some kind of evil lunatic who loves to commit war crimes or a megalomaniacal tyrant who wants to conquer the world because he hates freedom and democracy which means he will keep attacking and invading other countries unless he can be stopped, which means the only answer to the Putin problem is more war. Now, this is why empire apologists get angry at those who advocate the only sane and rational position toward nuclear brinkmanship by calling for de-escalation and detente. It's because... They've been aggressively indoctrinated into the belief that war is the only answer. The moronic narrative that the invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked poses a massive obstacle to peace because if Putin is just attacking and invading countries solely because he's crazy and evil, it means detente is impossible and he won't stop until he's decisively crushed. If it's accepted that the U.S. empire has played no role in provoking Putin's actions, that means there's nothing the empire could do to make continued Russian aggression less likely, apart from regime change, or at least severely crippling and punishing Russia militarily. And at this point, Caitlin Johnstone links to 
a tweet highlighting an article she did back on September 7th, which was titled, It's Not Okay for Grown Adults to Say the Ukraine Invasion Was Unprovoked. But her Substack article from early October continues, As long as the fact that this war was provoked remains unacknowledged by the side that provoked it, the sane path of de-escalation and detente will look like reckless appeasement of an irrational madman and aggressive escalations of nuclear brinkmanship will look like sanity. The absurd position that Putin is an irrational actor with some kind of weird fetish for war crimes is a one-way ticket to endlessly escalating war and eventual nuclear annihilation because it leaves you with no options but continually intensifying military confrontation. Now, this takes you back to what I said in a recent episode, which is how important it is to understand people who don't think like us who don't see the world we do, who don't have the same mindset, worldview, whatever, and how often our military intelligence and our intelligence community overall, writ large, frequently project the way they look at things, the way they think about things, to our opponents on the world stage, as opposed to trying to understand and figure out how they actually look at things. And they've been doing it for years, over and over and over and over and over again. Anyway, I don't have time to get into all the examples of that. Uh, But I digress. Caitlin Johnstone says, The claim that peace is impossible and Putin must be crushed imperils the whole world. Even to deliver... Total victory in Ukraine, pushing Russia back to pre-2014 borders. Could easily end up costing millions of lives and trillions of dollars and exponentially increase the risk of nuclear war with no guarantee of success at all. But even if you did push Putin all the way out of Ukraine, what then? He's still a crazy madman who wants to invade countries because he's evil and hates freedom. The internal logic of your narrative says the attacks on Russia must continue until you get regime change. Yep, that's what they've been saying. There's no stopping point on your line of thinking until there's a direct hot confrontation between nuclear superpowers. Be an adult and engage your critical thinking. Does a madman who goes around invading countries solely because he's evil and hates freedom sound like a real-life human being to you? Or does it sound made up? Like something you'd see in a Hollywood movie. Like something that was concocted by people responsible for controlling the dominant narratives of our society and funneled into your mind using media. Marvel Comics supervillains have more depth and complexity than the one-dimensional characters the Imperial Spin Machine concocts to represent its official enemies. Thanos was a more believable character with more understandable 
and nuanced motivations than the propaganda machine's fictional representation of Vladimir Putin. That representation has been overlaid on top of the actual government official who you might not necessarily agree with, but can definitely understand and engage in diplomacy and negotiation. Well, Donald Trump said, hey, I'd be happy to lead up a team to do exactly that. He's like, hey, we don't want nuclear war. He says, hey, Joe Biden, I'll be happy to come to the service of the country to stop what seems like a headlong rush to getting in a hot war with a nuclear power. I think Donald Trump's uh, offer has been ignored. Anyway, Caitlin Johnstone winds up her Substack article here saying, people who believe the empire's narratives about its official enemies have fewer critical thinking skills than your average Marvel Comics movie viewer. Think. Be a grown-up and think. Someone's benefiting from the aggressively promulgated narrative that peace is impossible and war is the only solution, and that someone is not you. It's amazing. Caitlin Johnstone.substack.com. The article is entitled, The Narrative That This War Was Unprovoked Prevents Peace. Yeah. Yeah, it clearly obviously does. Um, you know, I, I don't like being the bearer of bad news, but I, I, I believe that it is my God-given duty to, from time to time, confront you with inconvenient truths. And I hope that whole deal that I just shared with you is proven to be wrong. You know? I'm not Joe Biden. I'm not Lloyd Austin. I'm not George Soros. I'm not Barack Obama. I'm not Valerie Jarrett. I'm not Susan Rice. I don't want to get in a war with Russia, but it seems like they all do. You trust them? I mean, why, 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 do, you, why do you think? Okay, I'll throw in Mitch McConnell because it's bipartisan. I ain't gonna lie, fam. That, that's jacked up. That is jacked up. All right. Again, we remind you how much we appreciate our advertisers, our friends who make it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn show week in and week out as we approach our first anniversary. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system. 
reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you once again to Drs. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, our wonderful advertisers, our friends, our doctors. They've helped me and my wife so many times and so many friends of ours, too. Can't thank them enough for helping to sponsor what we do here, for helping to make it possible for us to do what we do here. All right, Biden regime and California Governor Newsom are both doing whatever they can to make it harder for you to protect your children and grandchildren from being castrated. Now, we're still going to talk about the Vegas shooting from five years ago, but we got to tell you what the Biden regime and what Governor Newsom are doing over the postmillennial.com, but there are plenty of places, plenty of news sites that have this. Breaking, California Governor Newsom signs bill to allow minors from other states to receive medical gender transitions in California without parental consent. Got it? On Thursday, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a piece of legislation that will designate the state as a sanctuary for children and teens seeking medicalized gender transitions. Newsom's signature on the bill, SB 107, comes nearly a month after the California legislature passed State Senator Scott Weiner's bill, which was introduced in 2021. The bill allows families or individual minors to travel, who travel to the state of California for the purpose of these medical procedures to be safe from out-of-state authorities acting on subpoenas, warrants, and child custody issues if the minor was brought into the state for procedures like surgical gender reassignments, or the prescribing of cross-sex hormones. The bill would also prohibit law enforcement agencies from making or intentionally participating in the arrest of an individual pursuant to an out-of-state arrest warrant based on another state's law against receiving or allowing a child to receive gender-affirming health care. That's what they call it. Of course, it's a lie, but that's what they call it. If a child comes into the state of California by himself or herself, the bill states that a court of this state has temporary emergency jurisdiction if the child is present in the state and the child has been abandoned or it is necessary for an emergency 
to protect the child because the child or a sibling or parent of the child is subjected to or threatened with mistreatment or abuse or because the child has been unable to obtain gender-affirming health care or gender-affirming mental health care. In addition, the bill that the state of California will not honor or enforce a law of another state that authorizes a state agency to remove a child from their parent or guardian based on the parent or guardian allowing their child to receive gender-affirming health care if a case is pending in California courts. According to the Los Angeles Times, Governor Gavin Newsom commended the bill during its signing. Here's what he said. In California, we believe in equality and acceptance. We believe that no one should be prosecuted or persecuted for getting the care they need, including gender-affirming care. Parents know what's best for their kids, and they should be able to make decisions around the health of their children without fear. We must take a stand for parental choice. Yeah, but the bill even says that if the kid gets across the state line, regardless of whether the parent agrees with the decision or not, the kid of any age can get that done to him. So again, liberals lie. All right, the great Margot Cleveland over the Federalist from September, short little article entitled, These Subpoenas Targeting Opponents of Chemical Castration Prove Biden is the Real Culture War Villain. She says the Biden administration has gone nuclear in the culture wars by launching an attack on the First Amendment rights of Americans, daring to challenge the far left's transgender agenda. That's what two new court filings from earlier in September reveal. The attorneys representing the Eagle Forum of Alabama and the Southeast Law Institute filed two separate motions to quash documents subpoenaed by the United States as part of the discovery and the ongoing case of Eckney's Tucker versus Marshall. In Eckney's Tucker, in that case, four transgender identifying children, their parents and several others, sued the governor of Alabama and other state officials challenging the constitutionality of the Alabama Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act, otherwise known as the Vulnerable Child Act. Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey, signed the Vulnerable Child Act into law April 8, 2022. It prohibits the administration of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or surgical procedures performed on minors if the practice is performed for the purpose of attempting to alter the appearance of or affirm the minor's perception of his or her gender or sex if that appearance or perception is inconsistent with a minor sex. The plaintiffs in the Eckney's Tucker case argue that the Vulnerable Child Act violates the constitutional rights of parents to obtain medical treatment for their children and the equal protection rights of transgender minors. Of course, the United States joined the lawsuit as a plaintiff 
also arguing that the Alabama law violates the federal constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law. In May, federal judge Lyles Burke, a Donald Trump appointee, entered a preliminary injunction prohibiting Alabama from enforcing those portions of the act that ban the use of puberty blockers and wrong sex hormones. Wow, a Trump appointee. That's horrific. Now, Alabama appealed the preliminary injunction order to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and the federal appellate court has scheduled a tentative hearing for the week of November 14, 2022. While Alabama's appeal of the preliminary injunction order remains pending at the 11th Circuit, discovery is underway at the trial court level. And as part of that discovery, the United States government, in what appears to be a first-of-its-kind move, has subpoenaed scores of documents from at least two nonprofit groups involved in lobbying for the passage of the Vulnerable Child Act, namely the Eagle Forum, that was Phyllis Schlafly's old organization, and the Southeast Law Institute. In its motion to quash the government's subpoena, the Eagle Forum, which is not a party to this legal case, explained that it is a grassroots, nonprofit Alabama corporation devoted to the cause of protecting Alabama's families and public policy initiatives and reform efforts. It was designed as a 501c4 organization. It has only one full-time paid employee and one part-time paid administrative assistant with nearly all of the nonprofit's work performed by volunteers. According to its legal brief, the Eagle Forum became gravely concerned about the provision of gender-bending medical treatments to minors in Alabama and worked to ban such permanently damaging procedures. Over the course of several years, the Eagle Forum furthered this goal by making speeches to various groups, communicating with members of the Alabama legislature, informing its membership of the issues, and encouraging its members to contact their legislators about this subject. It says they joined with other grassroots organizations with similar concerns in these efforts, assisting in drafting possible legislation to be considered by sponsoring legislators and arranging for witnesses who could testify at legislative committee hearings. In the subpoena issued for the Eagle Forum in August, the United States demanded that the nonprofit produce 11 broad categories of documents of information spanning from January 1, 2017 through the present day. Generally speaking, the subpoena sought documents revealing the Eagle Forum's efforts to push for passage of the Vulnerable Child Act, including communications with members and legislators. The government also issued a subpoena to the Southeast Law Institute seeking the same types of documents from them. Now, the Southeast Law Institute, like the Eagle Forum, is a nonprofit organization and not a party to the underlying ongoing legal case. It's a 501c3 nonprofit devoted to providing legal services 
without charge on the issues of sanctity of life, religious freedom, family issues, and others, according to its brief. The Southeast Law Institute further notes it has no employees and uses the services of volunteer lawyers. One of its volunteer lawyers, Eric Johnston, provided bill drafting assistance and legal research during the Alabama legislature's 2020, 2021, and 2022 sessions. The Southeast Law Institute explained these efforts included discussions with Margaret Clark, general counsel of Eagle Forum of Alabama, other lawyers, and legislators. In seeking to quash the subpoenas, both the Eagle Forum and the Southeast Law Institute argue that their communications with Alabama legislators are irrelevant to the question of the constitutionality of the Vulnerable Child Act because precedent makes clear that a legislator's intent in passing a law does not render it unconstitutional. So what Eagle Forum and Southeast Law said to each other, to their members and to the legislators' lobby, is irrelevant. The Eagle Forum and the Southeast Law Institute further argue that the subpoena infringes on their First Amendment rights. Here, too, the nonprofits are correct. The First Amendment protects the right to speak, associate, and assemble, and petition the government. And demanding the communications of private nonprofit organizations involved in lobbying will chill the public's desire to speak, to join, to petition, and to lobby, and the court should accordingly quash the subpoenas. But quashing the subpoenas is not, is not enough. The Biden administration must be called to task for this outrageous tactic that serves no purpose but to intimidate and silence its political enemies. And that is the great Margot Cleveland, the Federalist senior legal correspondent. And the article is entitled, These Subpoenas Targeting Opponents of Chemical Castration Prove Biden is the Real Culture War Villain. So what does this tell us about Biden and his crew? What does this tell us about Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom of California and the Democrats in the state legislature that overwhelmingly passed their law that a 12-year-old kid can walk across a state line from Nevada or Oregon or Arizona into California and get mutilated because he thinks he's a girl or she thinks she's a boy. What does it tell you? These people are evil. This is satanic. It's demonic. They're evil. This is a spiritual battle is what it is. They do double mastectomies on little girls. You know? They um, they do surgery on the, the genitals of little girls and little boys. Minors. It's evil. It's evil. So God bless the governor of Alabama for actually signing that law. April of last year, the governor of Arkansas vetoed a similar bill. He threw in with the evil one. And one of the reasons that I uh, 
ran for governor that I uh, challenged Sarah Huckabee Sanders for the Republican nomination for governor of Arkansas earlier this year was she refused to criticize the Arkansas governor for standing on the side of being in favor of mutilating children. Even when President Trump condemned Governor Asa Hutchinson and said what an improvement it would be when Sarah Huckabee Sanders becomes governor, she had no response. No, thank you for your kind words, President Trump, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. See, the bill never took effect. It never, the bill that Republicans in the legislature overrode Governor Hutchins' veto on, it never took effect because the ACLU, the Arkansas Chamber of Commerce, and the Walton Family Foundation, the heirs of Sam Walton, Walmart, challenged it in court. And Sarah Cuppy Sanders was not going to criticize the Waltons of Walmart or the Arkansas Chamber of Commerce. Nope. Nope. So a lot of people are going to be surprised when they think that they'll have an improvement when she takes over for Aza Hutchinson because she's never criticized anything he did, including all the lockdowns during the China virus, the Wu flu. But anyway, I did what I could. I did what I could, but it's evil. There's no question that it's evil. All right. Um, so let's talk for just a moment about the Vegas shooting, the October 1st Vegas shooting five years ago. And the great Greg Price, senior digital strategist for X Strategies LLC, has some thoughts over there on Twitter that I need to share with you. He says, a multi-millionaire retired accountant with no previous criminal record committed the deadliest mass shooting in American history five years ago today, and the FBI closed the case with a three-page report that never determined a motive. Got that? Wait, there's more. This guy was somehow able to get 23 firearms into a Las Vegas hotel room. He shot a hotel security guard six minutes before he began firing, but the first police officers didn't arrive until about about 15 minutes after his 10-minute shooting spree at the Route 91 Country Music Festival had ended. Now, The shooter's brother says it makes no sense. He's never hit anybody. He had a safe with a few handguns, but 
had no automatic weapons that I knew of at any time. It makes no sense. So let's hear let's let let's hear it in the shooter's brother's own words. Thanks to this Facebook post from WJXT4, the local news TV station in Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, he's never even drawn his gun. I mean, it makes no sense. He's never hit anybody. He's never... Gun enthusiast or just a few... He had a couple of handguns, I think. You know, he had a safe with a couple of handguns. He might have had one long rifle, but he didn't have any. I mean, he had no automatic weapons when... That I know that I knew of at any time, I, there's no. Uh, it just just makes no sense. So over the L.A. Times. Um, they uh, they interviewed a longtime business associate of this uh, Stephen Paddock guy, the mass shooter, Lisa Crawford, who worked as a property manager in Texas for the Vegas shooter, Stephen Paddock, from 2006 to 2012. She said he was the most stable, even-keeled personality. He never even got frustrated. So Greg Price wraps it up saying a well-off man in his mid-60s with no known mental health issues, no history of violent or criminal behavior or any extreme beliefs shot hundreds of strangers from the 32nd floor of a popular Las Vegas hotel and we still have no idea why he did it. So, and the FBI, shortly after the shooting, releases a three-page report with no motive. So what am I supposed to think? You know? What am I supposed to think? Because the official story doesn't make any sense at all, at all. Somebody links to a political article called Anatomy of a Conspiracy Theory. Subtitle, credible sources say the Las Vegas shooting was a one-man job, but a small band of former government insiders is propagating a wild alternative theory with dangerous consequences. And that is the theory about an assassination attempt of a Saudi prince who owns the top floor of the hotel 
hours before, but was never mentioned. So, you know, if you want to take a look, you go to politico.com, you do a search for an article by a guy named Keith Clore, K-L-O-O-R, called Anatomy of a Conspiracy Theory. It's way, way too long for me to read to you on the show today, but you know, if you know, if you're interested. But um odd, you know, that the hard drives from Stephen Paddock's computers were either missing or had been magnetically erased. A lot of uh A lot of strange stuff. Again, you know, there's a YouTube video out there called uh, Route 91 Uncovering the Cover-Up. You know, if you want to check it out. You know, if you're you're interested. But it's, it's over two hours long. And so Mindy Robinson did it, and she is a sharp reporter. Route 91 uncovering the cover-up. You might want to take a look at it. If you, you know, have concerns, if you're curious about it. You ever heard of a former FBI special agent by the name of John Guandolo? I've heard of him. He's over there on rumble.com. Exclusive interview with Turning Point USA. And he says it was a jihad attack. So... You know, if you want to check that out at rumble.com, FBI whistleblower, the enemy within. Well, I mean, the official line that was just a, just this guy, you know, just this Stephen Paddock guy, no motive, no, I mean, how do you get all those guns up there? None of it makes any sense. But the Vegas Police Department and the FBI are quite content saying, hey, it's all good. It's all good. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Yeah, 60 people dead, but that's okay. Did, have I ever mentioned to you that I believe the FBI needs to be dismantled? I have? Okay, well, good. Good. Because I believe that, and they do. All right. Now, speaking of the FBI, guess it's about time to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including 
your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online, have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. Okay, today's tweet of the day comes from the Babylon Bee, the premier satire website in the USA. The Babylon Bee. It is satire, but boy, is it good. They drag in uh, the My Pillow guy and the FBI. You're going to love this. I'm FBI Special Agent Hetfield. We recently raided founder and CEO of My Pillow, Mike Lindell. We expected to find evidence of election tech, fraud, support for Trump, which, as you know, is highly illegal. We didn't find any of that, though. What we did find was a good night's sleep. <laughs> I gotta say, politics aside, these pillows that we confiscated from Mike Lindell are the most comfortable, nicest pillows that I've ever slept on. I mean, all the guys in the office can't stop talking about how comfortable and soft they really are. Before we raided Mike Lindell as a political stunt, I was using a competitor's pillow. It was not a good pillow. Ugh, I can't sleep. How can I sleep? No, I am just a political arm of the Biden administration. <sighs> but now, after a long day raiding Biden's political opponents, investigating concerned parents at school board meetings, and egging on disturbed young men to commit acts of terror, I can finally catch a few Z's with my pillow's patented adjustable fill stay cool technology and fluffy design that will not go flat, no matter how many Trump supporters I beat with it. Where were you on January 6th? Come! You want me to do it again? I'll hit you again! Is that what you want? Go ahead! It's so comfortable. My pillow, the official pillow of the FBI. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Thank you so much to Mitch Ward. RedRiverYourWay.com for making it possible. Thank you for sponsoring the tweet of the day. All right, that having been said, you've been listening to episode 250 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Sunday, October 2nd, 2022.